Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution as we finish up a chapter on a year of increasing tensions as attempts to reform have not really been panning out entirely. Political Polarization By summer, the economy was falling apart at the seams. Russia was saddled with a gigantic debt to the Allies that had been incurred to buy war materiel that had not always arrived when it was needed. The provisional government continued the policy of paying for the war by printing money to meet its obligation. From March to June, currency emissions amounted to 3 billion rubles, in July and August to 2.3 billion. Footnote 100. New currency notes, known as Kerenki, after the Prime Minister, were so worthless that people began to hoard the hugely devalued Tsarist currency. The result was an astronomical rise in inflation. Between July and October, prices rose fourfold, so that the ruble possessed about 6% of its real pre-war value. Production of most fuel and raw materials had fallen by at least a third by summer, and, faced with shortages, many plants closed temporarily. By October, nearly half a million workers had been laid off. The economic crisis was aggravated by mounting chaos in the transport system, which meant that grain and industrial supplies could not get through to the cities. Bread was in particularly short supply. The value of real wages fell by 50% in the two capitals in the second half of 1917. Workers began to strike on a monumental scale. In the eight months between February and October, 2.5 million workers downed tools and the average strike increased in size as the year wore on. Footnote 101. Yet strikes also became harder to win, especially on wage issues. As they became less effective, the trade unions made efforts to negotiate collective wage agreements for entire industries. But negotiations proved intractable, and no sooner had new contracts been ratified than they were nullified by inflation. The other response to the economic crisis pursued by the factory committees, was to implement workers' control of production to prevent what workers believed was widespread sabotage being practiced by employers. Workers' control of production had ideological origins in the idea of worker autonomy that had arisen in 1905, but it was essentially a practical response to economic crisis a means of monitoring the activities of the employers with a view to preserving jobs. However, as supplies of fuel and raw materials dried up, and as orders declined, factory committees encroached ever more radically on employers' right to manage in order to ensure that workers were not laid off simply so that companies could maintain their profits. In areas such as the Danba and the Urals, Mining and metallurgical companies abandoned unprofitable companies, and the mine and factory committees struggled to keep them going. By October, there were no fewer than 94 unified centres of factory committees in towns, provinces, or branches of industry, together with an all-Russian central council of factory committees, committed to establishing workers' control of production across the entire economy. 
apart from anarchists and exar maximalists, whose numbers were few, only the Bolshevik party officially supported the slogan of workers' control, although even they were happier with the idea of state control of the economy, something all the other socialist parties could sign up to. The moderate socialists argued that since the writ of a factory committee could only run in one enterprise, workers' control could only aggravate the economic chaos by fragmenting efforts at state regulation of the economy. One of the symptoms of social disintegration that now became visible, one that would get steadily worse during the Civil War, was an upsurge in crime, especially violent crime. Prior to the February Revolution, the level of violent crime in Petrograd had been exceptionally low. In 1914, there were 14 murders, whereas the press reported 90 between March and October 1917. As regards property-related crime, the victims, at least in Petrograd, tended to be either the well-to-do or the poorest sections of the population. The breakdown in law and order had several causes. Some 7,652 prisoners were freed from the city's jails during the February Revolution, and by July there were some 50,000 deserters in the capital, all with firearms. The problem of combating crime was hampered by the fact that the civil militias established to replace the Tsarist police were underfunded and poorly organized, and quickly found themselves in competition with workers' militias, and, somewhat later, with Red Guards, both strongly class-defined organizations that were elected directly from the factories. Footnote 102. A similar pattern was replicated in provincial cities. In Nizhny Novgorod, the provincial Soviet made a rather forlorn request to the military commissar to disarm the 25,000 workforce at the Sormovo locomotive plant and ensure that firearms were only held by permit. Footnote 103. In Smolensk, the number of reported cases of violent crime was lower than in the capital, but the instance of thefts, burglaries, drunkenness, and sales of spirits was significantly higher than in 1916. Here, the numbers jailed or registered as criminals also increased, which suggests that the civil militia was not completely ineffective. Footnote 104. It was against this background of economic and social disintegration, and in the wake of the apparent triumph of the provisional government during the July days, that Kerensky became prime minister. He ruled very much in a personalistic fashion, cultivating an ascetic image as a man of destiny summoned to save Russia. He was still popular, but his hubris masked increasing political impotence. On the 19th of July, in a bid to halt the disintegration of the army, Kerensky appointed General Kornilov supreme commander-in-chief of the armed forces. All who knew Kornilov were aware that he was a man profoundly out of sympathy with the revolution, and he agreed to take up the post only on condition that there be no interference by soldiers' committees in operational orders or in the appointment of officers, and that the death penalty for insubordination be extended from soldiers at the front to those in the rear, something Kerensky had already agreed to on the 12th of July. Kerensky hoped to use the reactionary general to bolster his own position by strengthening the military force at his disposal and by restoring the frayed political tie with the cadets. 
By summer 1917, the cadets had at least 70,000 members, organised into more than 300 organisations. But now a majority within the party believed that only military dictatorship could save Russia from anarchy. Footnote 105. By mid-1917, moreover, at least 20 different organisations had formed that were committed to overthrowing the provisional government and establishing some form of dictatorship. They included the Society for the Economic Recovery of Russia, formed by bankers and industrialists in May, the Republican Centre and the Officers' Union, based at General Army Headquarters in Mogilev in Belarusia. Only with the State Conference, which opened in Moscow on the 12th of August to rally support for the coalition government, did these groups put their weight behind Kornilov as the saviour of the Russian nation. Footnote 106. How far Kornilov was bent on the overthrow of the provisional government is disputed by historians. He and Kerensky undoubtedly shared a common objective of destroying the Bolsheviks and bringing the Petrograd Soviet to heel. But Kerensky balked at Kornilov's demands that the railways and defence factories be placed under military discipline, replete with the death penalty. Each man appears to have hoped to use the other to strengthen his personal position, but when on the 26th of August, Kerensky received what appeared to be an ultimatum from Kornilov, demanding that all military and civil authority be placed in the hands of a supreme commander, he turned on him, accusing him of conspiring to overthrow the government. On the 27th of August, Kornilov ignored a telegram relieving him of his duties and ordered troops to move towards Petrograd. If this was a coup, it was a poorly planned one, and the Republican Center, an underground organization in Petrograd, failed to rise up as planned. In a humiliating bid to save his feeble government, Kerensky was forced to turn to the Soviets to stop troops reaching the capital. Railway workers scuppered Kornilov's advance by diverting his troops along the wrong railway line. Kornilov's action can be seen as marking the emergence of the White Cause, a military and political movement bent on restoring order by establishing a strong power. By dramatizing the threat of counter-revolution and by revealing the impotence of the government, Kornilov's rebellion seemed to confirm that the stark choice facing Russia was between Soviet power and military dictatorship. The Second Coalition collapsed, and Kerensky formed a five-man directory, a personal dictatorship in all but name, in which he had virtually total responsibility for military as well as civil affairs. Notwithstanding efforts to create a new coalition government, Many Mensheviks by now would no longer countenance a government that included the cadets, since they were blatantly implicated in the Kornilov Rebellion. The depth of the crisis among the moderate socialists was revealed at the Democratic Conference, called on the 14th to the 22nd of September to rally democratic organizations behind the government. This proved quite unable to resolve the question of whether the government should continue to involve bourgeois forces. On the 25th of September, Kerensky went ahead and formed a third coalition, but this failed to win gratification from the Petrograd Soviet, under Bolshevik control since early that month. This deprived the government of any chance of success, 
Yet the divisions within the pre-parliament, a council set up to advise the government on the 7th of October, highlighted the fact that even without the Soviet, its chances of success were close to zero. A majority in the pre-parliament could not accept that the army was no longer a fighting force and rejected a proposal to declare a truce, agreeing only to ask the Allies to clarify their war aims. Politics had become a theatre of shadows in which the real battles for power were going on in society. The paradoxical outcome of Kornilov's attack on the provisional government was to strengthen massively the forces of those who attacked it from the left. In most localities, the moderate socialists retained their hegemony until the rebellion, but thereafter their collapse was swift. In autumn 1917, there was a break in the public mood. The euphoria of the spring had given way to anxiety, to a sense of impending catastrophe and the Bolsheviks ably capitalized on this to suggest that they alone could avert it. As living standards plummeted and the threat of mass unemployment mounted, the slogans of bread, peace, and land, down with the imperialist war, and workers' control of production grew in popularity. Many now believed that Kerensky, previously the embodiment of the hopes of democracy, had proved himself a traitor to the revolution. On the 31st of August, the Petrograd Soviet, and on the 5th of September, a unified plenum of the workers and soldiers Soviets in Moscow, passed Bolshevik resolution on power. And in the first half of September, 80 Soviets in large and medium towns backed the call for a Soviet government. In towns such as Saritsyn, Narva, Krasnoyarsk, and Kostroma, Soviet power was already a reality. The Menshevik Sukhanov, describing the dogged efforts of the Bolsheviks to popularize the idea of Soviet power, wrote, quote, The Bolsheviks were working stubbornly and without let-up. They were among the masses, at the factory benches, every day without pause. Tens of speakers, big and little, were speaking in Petersburg, at the factories and in the barracks, every blessed day. For the masses, they had become their own people, because they were always there, taking the lead in details as well as in the most important affairs of the factory or barracks. They had become the sole hope. End quote. Footnote 107. Yet if the slogan, All Power to the Soviets, gained huge popularity, its meaning was ill-defined. The slogan belonged not only to the Bolsheviks, but also to left SRs, anarchists, and a few Menshevik internationalists. Generally, it was not understood to mean a demand for the type of state that Lenin advocated in State and Revolution, but rather a demand that the provisional government sever its coalition with the bourgeoisie and form a government of all parties represented in the Soviets, pending the convocation of the Constituent Assembly. Footnote 108. And even for most Bolsheviks, support for the slogan did not entail an armed seizure of power. The October Seizure of Power In the context of growing support for the Bolsheviks, Lenin concluded that internationally as well as nationally, the time was ripe for them to seize power. Footnote 109 from his hiding place in Finland, where he had gone after Kerensky ordered the arrest of key Bolshevik leaders, he blitzed the Central Committee with demands that it prepare an insurrection, 
even threatening to resign on the 29th of September when his demands were ignored. Quote, History will not forgive us if the opportunity to take action is missed. End quote. The majority of the leadership was unenthusiastic, believing that it would be better to allow power to pass democratically to the Soviets by waiting for the Second Congress of Soviets, which was scheduled to open on the 20th of October. Returning in secret to Petrograd, and still a wanted man, Lenin on the 10th of October succeeded in persuading the Central Committee to commit itself to the overthrow of the provisional government. However, no timetable was set. Zinoviev and Kamenev, two of Lenin's most trusted lieutenants, were bitterly opposed to the decision, believing that the conditions for socialist revolution did not yet exist and that a foolhardy bid for power would see the party crushed. As late as the 16th of October, the mood in the party was against an insurrection in the immediate future, and in an effort to delay plans for a seizure of power, Kamenev published a letter in Maxim Gorky's newspaper on the 18th of October, announcing to the world that he and Zinoviev considered it, quote, inadmissible to launch an armed uprising in the present circumstances, end quote. Lenin was driven to a paroxysm of fury and demanded their expulsion from the Central Committee. The die had been cast, and the issue was now about how a seizure of power should be carried out. On the 6th of October, the sweeping advance of Germany towards Petrograd had led the Kerensky government to announce that about half the garrison would be moved out of the capital to defend the approaches to the city. The Petrograd Soviet, under the chairmanship of Trotsky, interpreted this as a sign that Kerensky wished to relieve the capital of its revolutionary garrison. On the 9th of October, the Soviet formed a military revolutionary committee to prevent any such move. This was the organization that Trotsky would use to unseat the provisional government. Trotsky favored waiting for the Second Congress of Soviets to convene in order to gain its mandate to unseat the government, whereas Lenin reckoned that the different parties in the Soviet were unlikely to support decisive action, and argued that it was vital that the party seize power before the Congress convened so that it could be presented with a fait accompli in the form of a Soviet government. As late as 16th of October, the Bolshevik military organization, its fingers burned by the experience of the July days, expressed skepticism that the garrison could be relied upon to carry out such action. So Lenin toyed with the idea of bringing in sailors and soldiers from the Northern Front. In the event, the insurrection followed Trotsky's plan, becoming associated with defensive action by the Military Revolutionary Committee to resist Kerensky's plans to move soldiers out of the capital. Footnote 110. Lenin's demand that the seizure of power take place before the Second Congress convened was only made realizable by the decision of the moderate socialist majority on the Central Executive Committee of the Soviets to postpone the opening of the Congress from the 20th to the 25th of October. What is striking is just how late the plans for a seizure of power came together. Fully informed that the Bolsheviks were laying plans to overturn his government, Kerensky took steps to strengthen his defenses, moves that the Military Revolutionary Committee interpreted as a sinister plot to hand over Petrograd to the Germans. 
It ordered garrison units not to move without its permission, and on the 23rd of October, to only obey orders signed by the committee. When on the night of the 23rd to the 24th of October, the government shut down the Bolsheviks' printing press as a preliminary to moving against the Military Revolutionary Committee, Trotsky declared that action was now imperative to prevent Kerensky crushing the revolution. On the 24th of October, reliable military units and Red Guards took control of bridges, railway stations, and other key points in Petrograd. Unable to muster a credible military force, Kerensky fled. Just after midnight, Lenin emerged from hiding and went to the Bolshevik headquarters at the Smolny Institute, where he proceeded to enforce a more offensive tactic on the part of the insurgents. By the morning of the 25th of October, all strategic points in the city were under their control, and only the Winter Palace, headquarters of the provisional government, remained to be taken. That afternoon, Lenin, appearing for the first time in public since July, told the Petrograd Soviet that the government had been overthrown, and that, quote, in Russia, we must now set about building a proletarian socialist state, end quote. On the night of the 25th of October, the Winter Palace was stormed, and the provisional government arrested. At 10.40pm, against the background thud of artillery bombardment of the Winter Palace, the Second Congress of Soviets finally opened. About 300 out of the 650 to 670 deputies were Bolsheviks, so ratification of the seizure of power had to rely on the support of the 80 to 85 left SRs, who were active in the military revolutionary committees that were everywhere being set up. For their part, the Mensheviks and SRs denounced the overthrow of the government as a declaration of civil war and demonstratively walked out. Trotsky bellowed after them, quote, You are miserable bankrupts. Your role is played out. Go where you ought to be, into the dustbin of history. End quote. In Moscow, where the Bolsheviks had made no preparations for a seizure of power, neither setting up a military revolutionary committee nor strengthening the factory-based Red Guard, the commander of the military district, a right SR, put up spirited opposition when Soviet power was declared on the 25th of October. The SRs were strong in the garrison and city Duma, and it was only after a week of bitter fighting, with several hundred casualties, that Red Guards were able to proclaim Soviet power on the 2nd of November. The seizure of power is often presented as a conspiratorial coup against a democratic government. It certainly had the elements of a coup, but it was a coup much advertised, and the government it overthrew had not been democratically elected. It is noteworthy how few military officers were willing to come to the aid of the government, since many despised Kerensky for what they saw as his betrayal of Kornilov. The coup would certainly not have taken place had it not been for Lenin, and thanks to the decision of the moderate socialists to postpone the Second Congress, his plan to present the latter with a fait accompli was achieved. But the execution of the insurrection was entirely Trotsky's work, cleverly disguised as a defensive operation to preserve the garrison and the Petrograd Soviet against the counter-revolutionary design of the provisional government. In the last analysis, however, the provisional government had expired even before the Bolsheviks finished it off. 
And that's going to do it for this episode and this chapter. This puts us about one third of the way through the book, and in some sense feels like we have finished the setup, because so far it has established a lot of the conditions that led to this revolution and why attempts to undercut the revolution or appease it didn't quite pan out. And now I'm curious about the shape that revolution takes and the struggles it will face that cause it to take the particular shape it does over the following years. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can go to soundimage.org to find this and lots of other music by him. And on what is the 100th episode, 100th main real episode, I suppose, posted of this podcast, I'll once again say thank you for listening and keep reading.